Good morning, church family. As, as they're transitioning off the stage, let me take care of a few things this morning. Uh, first of all, apologies because a phone tree that was attempted to be sent out yesterday glitched and you did not get it. And some of you in here will know who this is, some of you will not. But one of our long-standing members here at the church, Harold Smith. How many of you know Harold? Raise your hand if you know Harold. Harold passed away yesterday afternoon. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up in a room full of people who probably don't know Harold is because were it not for Harold Smith's support when we were discussing launching this second service, I doubt seriously it would have ever happened. There was a moment of great debate in the church several years back and uh, in a business meeting. And Amy, you might remember it. I don't know if you were in there or not. But uh, Harold Smith stood up and said, we need to do this. We want to see lots of kids here at this church. And if this is an avenue to better reach children, I, want, I am 100% for it. So Mr. Smith was 100% for each of you being here under the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, under the singing of worship. And so you are connected to him, whether you realize it or not. Uh, we're, we don't have arrangements yet or nothing. And I wanted to share something before I, I go into worship today. Uh, how many of y'all read our newsletter? Everybody's hand should be up. Everyone's hand is up in the air. All of you, admit it, come on. If you don't, then you should. Shame on you, shame, shame, shame. Read the newsletter, all right? Uh, there's a weekly email that goes out. It's attached to that. You can read it there. We make it super easy for you to find the newsletter. Uh, we, did a, we did a volunteer profile every month. We interview different church members that do different things. I'm looking for a new one for this month, so probably one coming near you soon. I mean, if I ask you, say yes, say yes, right? Anyway, uh, I, we asked him, what's your favorite passage? And here's what Harold said in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to the strengthen those whose heart are fully committed to Him. And Harold said this. The verse speaks about eyes that He has on me. If I am fully committed to Him... I have my bad days or weeks or years, but I belong to him. He does not lose his possessions. Isn't that a great encouragement from a brother who is now sleeping with the Lord? Isn't that great? He has now reached that. So that's a verse for you to contemplate. I had never in all my new member interviews ever heard anybody say that was their favorite verse. And this morning he said that. I wanted to share that with you. You put that on a sticker, whatever, put that somewhere, keep that in front of you and be reminded of what Brother Harold encouraged us to. All right, if Harold was here today, he would also want me to remind you to take your Bibles out and turn with me to Luke 22. So let's do that. Luke 22, 53 through 65. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, we are working our way through the book of Luke. And we are now at this scene with Peter denying Christ. Um, we have seen that uh, Judas has betrayed Jesus. We've seen the arrest of Jesus. Now we are moving into this kind of mock trial and we're going to see Peter trying to keep what he passionately said he would do, and that is never abandon the Lord. He's, I'll never leave you, Lord. Kind of drew his sword and was ready to follow Christ wherever he would go. And yet here, in this passage today, Jesus had warned that he would deny him three times. And he does that, and let's see what happens here. All right, this is the Word of God, church. Hear it. Luke twenty-two fifty-three through 65. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests that are taking him into captivity. Verse 54, where we begin today. 
Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Amen. May God have blessed him the reading of his holy inerrant and infallible word i pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts today zach can i twist your arm to get me some water is that okay thank you um so i I am going to share with you a series that i really enjoyed i was forced to watch in high school but it was really good turned out to be great i have a history minor so i enjoy all things historical and the series is called Civil War. It came out in 1990. I think the History Channel did it, like a nine-part series on the Civil War. Who, who is familiar with this? It was, okay, several of you, good. Uh, if you'll remember, it was uh, Ken Burns, I think, kind of was a narrator and helped with that. And it was taking the work of Shelby Foote. Anybody familiar with Shelby Foote? Remember, he was from Mississippi. Thank you. He was from Mississippi, moved to Memphis, and he was a... Uh, an author of Civil War volumes. And the way he would write about the Civil War was not like a textbook, which I think many people find the doldrums, but he actually wrote about the Civil War in more like a novel format, but it was all historically true and accurate. So it just really gripped a lot of the American people and introduced them to Civil War history in a different light. So they made this series called Civil War, and then after they made the series, Ken Burns sat down to interview Shelby Foote, who kind of sparked this whole thing happening. And in this interview, Ken Burns asked Shelby Foote, he said, you know, if you were alive, if this was the Civil War, and you were alive knowing what you know now, would you have fought for the North or would you have fought for the South? Now, you know, most people today, when you ask that question, what are they going to say? Oh, I'd fought for the North. Slavery's terrible, right? Here's what Foote said. I think there's no question I would have fought for the South. Everybody's shocked. What? No, what? He goes on to clarify. You know, I'm from Mississippi. All of my people are from Mississippi. Uh, We no doubt know the horrors and the wrongness of slavery, but I would not have fought against my own people. I'm very much a product of my own environment. Now, that's a pretty radically honest answer, isn't it? I mean, most people would have just been, no, I'd fought for the North. Slavery's wrong. Yay for me, right? Or how about this? You talk to a German, 
You say, now, if you were alive in the 1930s and into the 40s, would you have stood against Adolf Hitler in the third rank? Right? The third right. Well, of course, people today will say what? Yeah, I would have stood against him, right? He's evil. I would have stood with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and those guys and opposed Adolf Hitler. But what if you were a German living in 1933? And you were reeling from the treaty that they drew up after World War I. And it was difficult just to make ends meet and put food on the table. And the economy in your country has not recovered. And the treaty's written in such a way it probably is not going to recover in your lifetime. And then comes along a young charismatic leader named Adolf Hitler who makes promises of restoration of the economy. Of bringing the nation of Germany back as a national contender and player in economics and making a third kingdom of Germans, a third Reich of Germans, who will rise to the top. I mean, sure, the guy's weird and says odd things about Jewish people and persecutes your Jewish neighbors, but I've got food on the table and plenty to spare and the bank account's up. Would you have opposed him then? Would you have? Or what about this? What if you're at the arrest of Jesus in verse 54 and your teacher, your leader is being hauled away for a mock trial and you have the, um, you have the opportunity to either stand with him, be arrested and face the same charges he does or to run out into the darkness and abandon him. What would you do? What would you do? Well, when we look at this passage today, I think I see three important movements that are here. Three important movements that are here. And three important lessons that we need. Uh, First one I would draw your attention to as my notes are all completely out of order. Wasn't that a great build-up to not find where my points are? That was a great build-up, wasn't it? Uh, (laughs) This is what happens when you have to do counseling in between services, right? You don't get time to look back through your notes. First one is this. We need to see the power of sin in our lives, right? And understand the mystery and the power of sin that is there. Uh, The second one, as I'm going from memory here, is that we need to understand um, the immense mercy of Jesus Christ. And the third one here is that uh, we will need to see the need for legitimate, real repentance. Legitimate, real repentance. So the power of sin in the life of a believer, real, legitimate repentance and also uh, the infinite mercy of Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the first one here. Now, as we look at this text and we examine it here, one of the first things that grips me is the reality here that I think Peter is convinced he is not reneging on the promise that he made. He is not reneging on the promise that he had made. Remember what he said to Jesus in the upper room at the Last Supper? What did he say? They come for you, Jesus. I'm going to do what? I'm going to follow you no matter what, right? I'm going to take out my sword. I'll make short work of those guards. I will be with you until the end. And then what happens? They come for him not long after that. And we see who all is with Peter here as he follows Jesus. Who's with him? How many disciples? How many did you see in the text today? Tell me, church. Zero. So one of the things I want you to see here in this passage is I think that we're seeing a demonstration first and foremost of Peter's deep, deep love for Jesus Christ. He's following him cautiously, but he's following him still at a distance. See, here's the reality of the text that I think we're going into. The reality is this. 
Uh, he did not see his sin for what it was yet. In fact, if you will rewind the tape to the upper room discourse, right, where Jesus is giving them the Last Supper and instituting the Lord's Supper that we observe now, and he tells Peter, you know, this is going to happen, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be taken away. And Peter says, I'll go with you wherever you want. And Jesus tells him, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to do what? You're going to betray me and deny me. And what's Peter's reaction when Jesus says that? What does he say? Yeah, he argues with Jesus, right? Not me, God. That's not me. I'm not, that's not me. That's not who I am, Jesus. I'm your right-hand man. I'm sticking with you. I'm not going to do that. What should it have looked like? It should have looked like this. It should have looked like... Dear Lord, no, please, Christ, give me the strength to not fall into this temptation. Because if you'll remember, when Jesus was instructing the disciples there in the upper room, what did he tell them? He told them what? You must pray that you don't fall into what church? Temptation. Pray that you don't find yourself at the corner of opportunity and desire. So that when the opportunity comes, you don't have the desire. Or when the desire comes, you don't have the opportunity. And here, Peter is placing himself in a position where he's going to be at the corner of desire and opportunity. Why? Because he is leaning on his own ability to follow Christ. You see, here here is something that we need to think about, right? Uh, We need to be honest about this reality in our hearts. First of all, we have the capability of any sin. Do you believe that about yourself? You know what one Scottish preacher said many years ago across the sea? One very famous Scottish minister said, In my heart are the seeds of every known sin. Do we believe that about ourselves? Do we believe that we are capable of any known sin? If you're sitting here today and you're saying, Pastor, not me. Church, not me. Lord, not me. You're standing with Peter, arguing with Christ. In fact, I would argue and say this. If this is what you're having, this internal dialogue you're having as I said that, you, beloved, are in deeper trouble than you know. See, those seeds that are there, Satan uses those to leverage you, leverage you into greater sin still. Think about this for just a minute. Peter, in, he is following Jesus at a distance. He, he, he even works his way into the courtyard, you know, to, to kind of draw this in your mind mentally. This mock trial is going to take place at the high priest's house, which they would sort of build their houses in a circle with a fire in the middle that was used to keep warm in the winter and to bake and cook with in the summer and for all activities. So it's not like here, you know, if we were to redesign houses here in Carter County, you wouldn't have straight lines of houses. You'd kind of have like circles of houses. The courtyard area is like this area that's kind of shared in between these homes. And being Caiaphas and being the high priest, uh, he's got a lot of money because if you'll recall from previous chapters all of the economic money flew in through the temple in Jerusalem right so he's kind of like the sub you know contractor here for all the money coming in and out for all of the sacrifices and so he's got a very nice balcony he's got a very nice courtyard he has a very lovely home and here somehow Peter's able to kind of come inside there among all of these people now he's his seed sin here the like the the beginning sin here that Satan's going to leverage is, of course, the, the, the fearfulness. The fearfulness here. He's afraid. And I, and I don't know that it's unfair to say that we wouldn't be in the same position 
if we were him. I, I mentally imagine he probably kind of covered himself up, maybe draped a cloak over his head to sort of kind of, you know, make people question who he really was. But he, he felt, a, I think, an endear desire to be near Christ so that he wouldn't have to face this mock trial by himself. So he feels that he's really uh, fulfilling what he said at dinner earlier in not abandoning Jesus, but he's following Jesus at sort of a distant, calculated, self-preserving pace. Does that make sense? So, what do we have here? Well, we have a demonstration here that Peter does love Jesus. And I don't doubt it when a lot of people tell me that they love Jesus. I think it's sometimes unfounded. Um, For example, is anybody here from Indiana today or the Midwest? Okay, great. I can use this illustration. You wouldn't know the difference. But anyway, when I was pastoring in Indiana, um, I remember a family I ministered to for like 10 years. And I told them I loved them a lot, glad to be around them. And do you know how many times they told me they loved me? Five. Five and ten years. And do you know when they told me? They told me the week I was packing up to move back to East Tennessee after ten years of ministry. Now, I believed them, (laughs) right? Because I had seen demonstrations of that over the years. But, you know, then I came to East Tennessee, and what I found was here at the church people oh pastor we love you so hard and I hadn't even been their pastor for 24 hours and I was kind of like what you may think you love me but you don't really know me yet right in a similar fashion I think there's a lot of people who love Jesus and they really believe that love is sincere and they think just like Peter that that love will be enough their love for Jesus will be enough to guard them from temptation and here's the sad thing in this text It isn't. Your love for Jesus isn't enough. Isn't that shocking? I think it's shocking. It was shocking to me as I read this text this week. So it is, what are we to do, right? Well, we need to take just a moment here and realize this. We need to think on the great, infinite mercy of the Lord. There is a contrast here between Jesus and Judas. Judas, the great betrayer here. What is the difference between Peter and Judas? What's the difference? They both betray him, right? I mean, in this passage here, Jesus or Peter is is pointed to three times, right? First time, the woman says, you're one of them. No, I'm not, right? Denies it then. Second time, a man, no. Third time, says he's a Galilean. He's got to be one of them, right? Now, how would he know he's a Galilean in that text? You ever thought about that? because of the accent. Galileans have a way that they speak. There's a certain way they use and roll their R's that's different than the people who were native-born people from Jerusalem. We have the same issue in our language, right? You know, when I went up north to the Boundary Waters this summer, I remember stopping at a store and the clerk asked me, would you like a big? A what? A big. Would you like a big, sir? I was like, one more time. I'm sorry, I'm just not getting it. And then she said, a bag to put your stuff in. Do you want a bag? A bag. You're asking me if I want a bag, right? It's just completely different than how we say it here. But they were saying big, like B-E-G, big. And uh, I was like, I don't know what you're begging me for, but, and I, you know, it's whatever. Uh, we, we know that people in Georgia have a deeper kind of 
R, they draw out their words and add R sounds, right? Walled wall, three, two, you know, I mean, they're very, very deep southern kind of a draw, right? Uh, it's really just a British accent slowed down. That's what a deep southern accent is. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but that's what it is. You know, as the children are born, they speak a little slower than their parents, and that's eventually where the accent comes from. Now, here in East Tennessee, I know you probably don't hear it if you're a native like me, but uh, we, we have an accent as well. It's nasally, right? You know what gives us away when we're in other parts of the country? Any word with the letter I in it. So if you say ice, rice, anything like that, mice, they will immediately know what region you're from, Southern Appalachia here, the mountains of East Tennessee. And then do you know, just for bonus points that has nothing to do with the sermon, just since we're talking about accents, where do they send national newscasters to be trained to lose their accent? So where do they send newscasters so that their accent dies? Indiana, because that's the most bland vanilla place on the planet. You send people there, they lose any kind of identity markers, and they can't have any kind of an accent anymore. That's where they go to try to lose their accent. So anyhow, but enough of that, right? I, I, I'm glad for my friends there. Moving on. So that's how they knew him. The infinite mercy of Jesus. What is the difference, back to the question, what is the difference between Judas and Peter? Is Peter a better man than Judas? Is Peter less sinful than Judas? What's the difference? What do you think, church? You think, you think Judas is better or Peter is better? The difference between the two is verse 61. Look at this verse with me. Look at verse 61. Can we get on the screen? Here we go. Verse 61 says, so he denies him three times. Read it with me, church. Will you read it with me? And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Wonder what that look looked like, right? You ever thought about this? What did that look look like, right? Peter's standing on the courtyard there trying to warm himself around the fire, being close. He's at the eye shot of Jesus. Jesus here knows, you know, Adrian Rogers said once, uh, Jesus put a gag order on all roosters until Jesus, until Peter made this last blasphemy here and then let those crows, that one crow, ring out. What was in that look? There was something there that was convicting. You see, he was being shown his sin. Look what it says here. It, it even clarifies what happens next. Read it again with me, church. And Peter remembered the saying of the, of the Lord. So here's what happens. The Lord looks. He sees you. You see the Lord seeing you and what you're taking place and doing. And He reminds you of what the Word says. Right? B.B. Warfield once commented on this, a great preacher of yesterday... And he said this about the passage. As our Savior was being, was being tried and preparing to bear the sin of us all on the cross, he had time to give one glance to a faltering disciple and so save his soul in the saving of the world. You think of it. You know it. Jesus had a lot to keep up with during this mock trial here. But in the middle of all this, he looks at this one individual disciple shoots him this glance, and notice the response that he has, right? The next verse tells us here, what did he do, church? Went out into the darkness of night and wept bitterly. Now, the question is this, is this repentance unto salvation, or is this worldly repentance? Because the Bible warns us that there are two types of repentance. There is a repentance that is worldly, that it's, I'm sorry I was caught. What does that look like? Well, I'll give you an example. 
had a friend, best at his job in the ministry that he was that one of the ones he could be. And uh, I was put on a restoration team with him. And I asked him one time, I said, uh, what has been one of the hardest things to live with since all this came out and you lost your position and working through all this? What I was expecting to hear from him was how I failed my Savior and broke his heart. That's what I was expecting to be the leadoff, right? You know what the, you know what the leadoff was? I just really miss those friendships I have and that I don't have no more. Okay. All right. You know. Let me tell you another thing I hear a lot as a pastor. I'll hear people that are caught in gross, high-handed sin that is treasonous and deadly to the soul. And when confronted about it by other believers, they'll say this. Me and God, we got something worked out. We got a deal. Me and God got a deal. We got something worked out. Listen, when it comes to the creator and sustainer, the maker of all that is, you don't get to dictate terms to him. You don't get to cut deals with him. He makes the deal. He puts it in print. He puts it on the cross. And you either take the deal or you don't. <laughs> That's the reality of it. When people say that to me, when they say, me and God's got something worked out, I begin immediately praying for them because they are either in one of two categories. One, they are uh, teetering on the sin that leads to death and teetering on certain destruction. Or two, they're lost as the day is long and, and have never met Christ or understand or know anything about the gospel, but they think they love him. Okay? Or two here is he repenting. And turning to the Lord. Now, what I would argue for here is since many of the commentators are divided, many people have interpreted it in different ways, I would say this is the beginning process of true repentance unto salvation, which is completed at the latter part of the Gospel of John when Jesus is standing next to him and doesn't even feel worthy to be in the same room as him or in the same area as him. And he finally does the transaction of forgiveness and has full restoration with Jesus, right? Jesus knew Peter was going to falter. He knew, he said to him in the upper room, what? After you've been restored, strengthen the brothers. He told him it was going to happen, and he told him what was going to happen afterwards. And then we have those fine works that Peter wrote that have been strengthening saints for years and years, and will continue to do so. Finally, here we see the necessity of repentance. Third thing in this passage, it's a message here about repentance. And I want you to, to see that, how repentance takes root here, how Peter eventually repented in took that whole transaction all the way. He didn't just run out in the night and make this whole thing about him and him alone. You ever known people like that? Like when you're in a situation, like you lose somebody you love, and they want to take that whole situation and somehow make it about them and, and make a big theatric about them. You know, at the end of this passage, in the end of Peter's story here, we know he eventually turns back to Christ. Uh, certainly he's broken over his sin here, and certainly there's a call and a need here for genuine, true repentance in Christ. Stopping, to, uh, stopping reliance on yourself, stopping reliance on just how much you love Jesus, stopping reliance on how well you can fend off temptation, but really leaning into this truth that Peter sees here and is convicted of. As the dawn draws here and morning comes in here, uh, this is what, what is happening here. Satan has leveraged here the fear in his heart. He has leveraged here uh, that and caused it to go into blasphemy. Fear is one sin. Blasphemy is altogether another one. And that's how he works. But praise God that his grace is infinitely merciful still. Praise God today that Jesus died on the cross for us. Praise God that we can battle these seeds of sin that are there. 
because of who Christ is and the weapons that he's given us through prayer and the word. Now, let me close here with an illustration. How many of you are familiar with the old hymn from the 1700s, Come Thou Fount? I think we've sung it in here a few times. Raise your hand if you know this song. Come Thou Fount of Ever Blessing. Robert Robinson, is anyone familiar with his life? You know his life at all? Robert Robinson was a well-known uh, preacher of his day. Uh, we, we understand his father died when he was at the tender age of eight. And that in, uh, in a revival read by George Whitfield, he came to know Christ on December 10, 1755, because there was an inescapable phrase that the great preacher Whitfield, George Whitfield used, said, Oh, hearers, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. And it was escapable. Uh, Mr. Young Roberts here was, it was inescapable that he needed Christ. And so he came to Christ. He became a pastor. He pastored Baptist churches, Methodist churches, other denominational churches. And, and at once it was recorded that at one point there were a thousand attenders that would come and hear him preach. But unfortunately, for some reason, and some inexplicable reason, he became altogether unstable and unhappy. He, his Christian beliefs and training didn't seem as important to him, and he kind of walked away from a lot of this. And on the occasion here, years later, he found himself a passenger with a young lady in a stagecoach riding to another destination. It's said and reported that she was singing or humming the song, Come Thou Found of Ever Blessing. And as she was singing it, he said this to her. He said, Madam, I am, unha- I am the unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them, if I could feel now as I felt then. Unfortunately, I think Mr. Roberts was a victim of uh, a misunderstanding of the work of God, uh, thinking that it was all about event to event and not thinking about the daily profession of the heart, the daily reminders and that discipline, how critical that is, losing sight of that and so, into something else. We are all prone to wonder, just as Peter here. But God is merciful, infinitely merciful, and repentance is necessary. Let's pray. Lord, as we ponder on these verses here, our hearts are drawn to you. Lord, and, and the great truth that is here, that as we would... We would see here not to be a people that have remorse without repentance, not to be a people who are uh, self-preservant instead of self-sacrificing, not to be a people who are self-confident instead of Christ-dependent, but instead that we would be a people who sees Peter's usefulness despite of his betrayal, who suffer humility because... Uh, of we see a savior who suffered humility because despite his innocence lord we see a we see even this passage here a christ a savior who who doesn't flee away from this but who doesn't fail but stays faithful through it lord we're reminded in this text today the more closely i follow christ the more clearly i'll confess him help us today to stay closely in following him It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never done that. You've heard a call today, a call to to this merciful, infinitely uh, merciful God. Won't you come to Him? If you're here today, you want to be part of this church family. We would love to have you here. You'll be part of this family.
if you're here and you just want to pray, you say, you know, Travis, the seeds of sin are here. The seeds of sin are in my heart. And I, I need help. I can't, I can't leverage them out. Only Christ can help me. Won't you just pray right now for that help? Please stand as we sing.